So, I like coffee. I really do. I like cappuccino. I like putting sugar in it. I like it when it's been made with a proper coffee-making machine. La Marazocco. You know, these are the handmade machines built in Florence and Italy. They are like the Rolls-Royce of um, barista technology. They are exquisite pieces of engineering that produce the most wonderfully textured cappuccinos with the most perfectly frothed milk and uh, you know when you go into a coffee shop and they have one of those La Marazocco machines in their shop that you've got a serious um, barista culture happening. Uh, so here I am at fucking welcome break. You know, some of you might have listened to me before. I oft- I drive a lot. I travel around a fair bit in my little Ford Fiesta, and um, I'm in bloody welcome break. This is the bleakest place in the world. It's one of these roadside um, stop stations, and um, I'm you know there's a sense of dreariness, repetitiveness. I'm tired. You know, I had a late night last night finishing off stuff for a client at the meeting today. And um, I ate a coffee. I ate a coffee. And I've got a choice between Costa and Starbucks. And um, neither of them are filling me with any joy. They're not, they're not tapping into the deep, needed, you know, fine coffee experience that I'm craving right now. I could get away with a Costa, I prefer that to Starbucks, they've got the Costa machines there, but, you know, what do we do? And it's this, it's, this is what I call lethargic architecture, lethargic property. These buildings have a soporific effect on your consciousness, they send you to sleep, um, and when you feel drowsy and tired, they carefully coordinate a um, caffeine dance with these suppliers, these purveyors of coffee beans, both Costa and Starbucks. Anyway, that's me. Um, that's it, really. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head off now, and uh, we'll talk very soon. So here I am. I have left the beautiful, rural, vernacular architecture of Northumberland, and I find myself sitting in the front seat of my little Ford Fiesta in a car park of a Days Inn hotel next door to a moto, one of these kind of motorway service stations which contains three Costa Coffees, uh, a Burger King and a WH Smith and a Krispy Kreme cabinet. It's not even a full Krispy Kreme, a Krispy Kreme cabinet. And just the kind of stark contrast here between the architecture of the countryside to the architecture of the motorway. The architecture of the motorway is something which is easily manufactured, it's replicatable, it's mass-produced, it's unidentifiable, it has no sense of place, no unique uplifting qualities to it. It's a pure, hard, functional building that is there purely to cater to our consumption and whatever addictive habits that we need to have. You're engaged in a trance-like process of driving along a motorway, which in itself 
you know, if you're not careful, you just go into a sort of monotonous thinking. Um, you know, you begin to sort of lower your brain cells and brain activity down unless you're listening to something engaging or engaging in conversation or listening to some music or whatever. But motorway driving can have a particular trance-like effect on us. And then you stop and come into one of these places and uh, any sort of distraction will do. It doesn't matter what it is. I just spent a pound on a poker machine which was a pound wasted very well. Let me tell you, I didn't win anything. It was an, a little Irish leprechaun character jumping across the screen, and I didn't win 500 pounds. But those, you know, these, these types of places are there for distraction. They're there for us to have a little bit of respite. Very rarely, this is, you know, it's really interesting to consider the architecture of our infrastructure and the architecture of travel. And traveling being one of the most poignant human activities, Rarely, on the, yeah, on, the, on, the, on the whole of it, the architecture that you get on something like a piece of motorway is just totally, totally banal. Totally nondescript, uh, uninteresting, lowering the spirits, lowering consciousness. Uh, you know, you may end up spending a night here and it's just it's pretty bleak. It's pretty, pretty bleak. Long gone are the days of highway inns uh, and that kind of thing. So, you know... I, I, I put it out there as a really interesting design project to how can, how, what, would, what would reinventing motorway service stations look like? You know, it's such a bleak, uh, uninspiring brief on the surface of it. But how could we start to create places along our routes of travel that become places of excitement and inspiration and places of respite. And I mean, the other thing is symptomatic of this is that we are in a rush. Human beings, we are in a rush to get everywhere. So these places are kind of in, out, want your attention for a few seconds, buy a coffee here, stuff your face with something uh, readily consumable and get the fuck out and go back onto the road. That's the culture that we're in. So having a kind of magical entertaining place where there's books and libraries and stuff it doesn't seem appropriate and it's a cultural thing so there's an inquiry here uh, and, and, a, and, a, and a thinking of any designers or anybody at all who's interested what would you what would a, how could you be reinvent the motorway service station into a place that raises the human spirit good evening so i am in st catherine's docks which is, uh, again, East London. I'm driving on my way home, um, and I've come past this incredible construction site where it's part of a large development called... I cannot remember the name of it, which is unfortunate, but we're by Royal Mint, um, that sort of part near Tower Hill. St. Catherine's Docksway, and the development looks like it's kind of stripped back one of these old office buildings, and you can see all the exposed steelwork, all the I-beams, all the structure, kind of just totally revealed. And on the inside of the buildings where the office space would have been before, they've got a kind of series of a lattice work of acroprops, scaffolding, which has all then been sheeted and covered with translucent white tarpaulin plastic. And then it's been lit behind by a series of fluorescent tubes, which gives it an incredible look. Um, I mean, I, I think it really, is quite an imaginative 
it's quite evocative. Um, I often find buildings during the construction process really beautiful because they're kind of filled with possibility. You don't know what they're going to end up looking like. There is a certain ambiguity ambiguity sorry to the structure that allows your imagination to kind of kick in and you can start visualizing various possibilities or they just look unexpected so this kind of effect which was unintentional i'm assuming of having this kind of tarpaulin that's been backlit and it gives it gives the building this very delicate lantern-like appearance um it just gives it a very kind of mystical interesting uh, ghostly appearance uh, and it's got a kind of you know a, a facade which is not as solid as the final building I expect is going to be or the neighboring buildings are and it's just it's just interesting I really really like it and it's not the first time I've come across these uh, buildings during this stage of um, renovation or construction um, and have been thoroughly visually satisfied so I'm going to put a few pictures on my Instagram so you can have a look at it and there'll be a video of it somewhere. But yeah, buildings during construction and during the sort of after they've died, you know, architectural ruins have this same kind of ambiguity that triggers the imagination. Good afternoon we have a beautiful day here in sunny london 29 degrees has been the highest point of the day um, and i'm standing in this gorgeous park somewhere on the edge of romford near where my office is located at the moment and i'm looking out onto this beautiful lake which is kind of filling me with a lot of refreshment at the moment and um i was just thinking about the architecture of the banal that's the name of this particular podcast episode and i'm really fascinated by the everyday occurrences of architecture and for me architecture is a way of looking it's a way of seeing it's a way of perceiving things it happens as a cognitive act first in the mind and when we adopt that kind of architectural way of looking at things, we can have moments of architecture anywhere, any place. And for me, that kind of moment of architecture is when we kind of see things in a new way that kind of gives us a new fascination or a new curiosity, or there's a new level of awareness, right? That is really what architecture is. Architecture is a building, for me, are powerful buildings are ones that kind of push us towards new levels of awareness, whether it be of something very simple, like light or day. These are the kind of traditional um, things that architecture can be very powerful at giving us a new view on, you know, just the movement or the movement or the, the experience of the passage of time. That can be a very profound and contemplative thing that uh, a building can draw our attention to, which we would otherwise overlook. Um, and I was wandering through his park and I was standing by this generator. It may have been some kind of filtration system for the lake. And it was giving off this horrendous hum, a kind of... kind of sound. And it got me thinking that much of our urban landscape is dominated by hums and drone sounds and buzzes and background noises. And our brain is in this constant 
state of orchestrating which sounds it allows us to perceive. So often you might find yourself in, um, in a new environment and you'll go into like a hotel room, say, in a noisy city. I remember I was in Mombasa, it was a very noisy outside. And for the first evening, it was just like, oh my goodness, I could not deal with the sound of the traffic outside. We've also got an apartment in Harlem. And um, when I first stayed there, the noise of New York on the streets, my goodness, it was crazy. But after a while, my brain and our brains begin to filter out the sounds and we become accustomed to them and we kind of lose that um they stop being an irritation to us you know our brain has a method a way of kind of filtering out only the information that is relevant to us and then in certain uh, levels of awareness we can actually just make peace with whatever sounds are here so in this particular part we've got the buzz of this generator we've got the railway track which is right behind me now um, the sound of the busy A13 as well, that gives a real sort of uh, a background noise. And lots of these sounds, particularly the sounds of the city, tend to merge into a one homogenous background sound, a kind of a kind of hum. And with kind of diving into it with your, with your listening, you can begin to pick out more individual sounds. So that's the architecture of the banal for today is just to be listening to what is around in your city. Listen to the tapestry sounds and get in and out of that kind of experience of the background sound. Because actually, the, when you listen to all sounds as a kind of overarching view, particularly when you're in a park, a park can often give you a, a bit of space where you're not in the sound and you can, kind of, you can hear sound from a distance. And there's something quite organic and actually something quite relaxing about it. So, I'll leave you with the sound of the train going past. Good evening, Ryan Willard here. Um, welcome to the podcast, Architecture of the Banal. And today I want to talk a little bit about hotel lobby music. So, being an architect who has nomadic tendencies, I often find myself perching and occupying hotel lobbies as makeshift transient offices where I conduct a lot of my own architectural research and um, I conduct meetings there and meet with clients and all sorts of stuff. And I do, I, generally I'm quite a fan of hotel lobbies and it kind of, there's a, a bit of a, a sort of nostalgia for me personally because I grew up in Hong Kong for a few years in my late teens. I grew up in grew up in Croydon and then ended up going to Hong Kong when I was about 16 and lived the in a kind of expat life and part of that excitement was the fact that we were always dining in hotels or there was lots of travel so there was a kind of glamour and an excitement to it that I remember from that kind of period of my life and hotel lobbies kind of still have a little essence of that and I, I do like them as environments and I end up working there quite a lot. And they always tend to be filled with this dreadful ambient hotel lobby music, which is kind of like a deep ambient house music, which on the surface of it lulls you into a false sense of relaxation and calmness. But underneath it is this constant 4-4 beat pounding away 
gently increasing your heart rate and making you feel like either you've got to get out of here at some point or there's something to do or um, it's just trying to quicken the level of consumption of coffee or tea or beer or whatever it is that you're consuming whilst you're in the hotel lobby. Uh, And it's interesting that this kind of music is a genre When we think back of the history of this kind of spatial music genres, you know, elevator music is another music that this this type of things are, you know, commonplace. We see them all the time. We experience them all the time. This kind of relaxing ambient sounds to fill up these sort of transitionary spaces. And really it kind of goes back to Brian Eno, the masterful music producer who produced people like David Bowie and U2. And Eno, um, I think it was in the early 80s, maybe. Maybe it was a bit earlier than that, even. Um, created an album called, I think it was called Music for, Airport, Music for Airports. And he was talking about how the airport really is one of these spaces which we could be using to contemplate our existence in a, in a way. And when you, when you kind of think about it, the act of getting on a plane is quite incredible. You know, you're kind of about to go up 40,000 feet into this totally hostile alien, alien environment, this kind of upper parts of the Earth's atmosphere where if you were to stick your head outside that window, it would either freeze or pop or whatever. Um, such a hostile hostile place but yet we're in this very controlled tight pressurized still fuselage 40,000 feet up in the sky um it's remarkable and it kind of you know it's one of these so there's a fragility to it as well if something goes wrong with all this technology with this kind of creation um that's it there was there's no there's very little recovery um you know you, you see it when a when a plane when there's a plane accident it's a it's it's catastrophic it really is and so and we kind of take it for granted almost this you know how how easy it is to travel from place to place how easy it is for us to utilize this technology and the airport can be a place for actually taking note of our lives and experiencing gratitude and just you know, it's also a time when we get to stop. It's a time where we get to, like, we're not being bombarded by um, constant work or, you know, it's also, airports are places of emotion, of, of, of people coming and going. There's a lot of interesting qualities, human qualities about the airport, which we don't actually experience because airports have become uh, frenzied places of consumerism. They are essentially, you know, there's nothing else to do except for shop. And that's what, they, that's what they've, they've become. So, you know, Eno's antidote to that almost was, was music. That creating a kind of contemplative, meditative type of music where we could just get in touch with some of the, you know, this is a, this is a, a gift. This is a, a, one of those kind of rare moments in life where there's actually a pause happening. Um, you know, when we're moving between places and activities, there's a little place to stop and pause and reflect and connect. Um, and it kind of, you know, that music kind of grows out of that concept. And 
it's kind of spawned off these other genres like hotel music, like elevator music, these kind of transitional spaces. There's this music to kind of accompany them. Um, however, the sort of music industry that produces this kind of music, like once you've been allowing your ears to be saturated with it for many, many hours over uh, many, many days, does start to do your nut in a little bit. Good evening. So I'm sitting here in my car, my little Ford Fiesta, uh, underneath a residential block of buildings in a car park. And I wanted to talk about car parks because they're quite interesting places. They're like the bowels of any building. And as an architect in my career, unfortunately, I have spent lots of time designing car parks. I have designed car parks for high-end luxury buildings in Mayfair where I've had to ensure that there are car lifts that can fit Bentley Continentals and extended Rolls Royces and limousines um, and make sure that you've got the right turning circles for these kind of beautiful grand um, cars. I've designed car parks for airports where the flow in and out is incredibly important and where you know you have these large long stay car parks that become enormous structures and they end up getting placed right next door to this beautiful terminal building that the other the terminal building team they've spent years developing and they've got these beautiful facades and all this high-end technology going on in this super high-tech uh, exquisitely crafted building and then you have put this gigantic car park right in front of it and you've on your it's like a reactionary um, response you need to kind of figure out how do we make it look not so shit so you find all these kinds of ways of cladding uh, your still framed concrete car park um, with something interesting or some sort of unusual cladding to try and disguise its inherent ugliness uh, and car parks are like that um this one i mean at the moment is pretty horrific looking there's something kind of cave-like about it there are the shittest lights you can possibly imagine the raw exposed steel work with the i think it's called trape trapezoidal um galvanized steel decking as i remember it's a kind of like um, I don't know, it's a bit like a corrugated tin, essentially. You can see for the ceiling, and then you can see the raw exposed, exposed RSJs and I-beams, and they get covered in fire retardant, fire insulation, which has this kind of really ugly look. It looks a kind of... just. It just looks horrid. Really, there isn't anything aesthetically pleasing about it. It's like really bad plastering. Um, and it gets really, really filthy. It just gets, it just attracts dirt and dust and exhaust fumes and muck and grit. And then, of course, you have the, the kind of the bowels of the building, all the pipework just sort of running willy-nilly all over the place. Gas pipes, air pipes, water pipes, um, electric cabling pipes, all over the place. Uh, and in modern culture, the car park has become quite an evocative space. It's become a space which is about 
something sinister. It's about the subterranean worlds. It's about the subconscious. It's about things that are happening that we don't want to happen. They become used in scenes, in films, and TV programs to create tension. You know, the cliched scene of a lady or somebody walking to their car just before they're pounced upon by somebody who's hiding in the shadows of the car park, or they become a place where a deal is done. You know, the exchange of thousands of pounds of you know of contraband or something illicit happens in the scenes of the car park. So, car parks are. One of these spaces that our cities are filled with, and they can be very interesting spaces as they're kind of uncared-for spaces. There rarely do you go into a car park that's exquisitely designed. Though they do, they do exist,、um, but they become. A kind of like the modern cave, if you like, except they're not as nice as caves because caves can be very beautiful. But next time you're in a car park, just have a little look around. Enjoy. <laughs>